Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us uh, today in what will be the final installment in our ongoing conversation about the way in which violence manifests itself in our culture and the responsibility and responses of the church, not only to violence itself and to its elimination, but also to the care of victims. Over the course of these past uh, few months, we've talked about it in several forms, its presence in scripture, its uh, presence as uh, a phenomenon in American culture. Talked about it in terms of gun violence, domestic abuse and sexualized violence, youth bullying and suicide. And at the end of all of this, we come to the realization that violence continues to be with us. And it's perhaps the greatest challenge for people of faith is to find ways to bring people back into the fold of community. Forgive and to reconcile. And so today I would propose that we conclude our conversation with a discussion about how we might think about forgiveness and reconciliation, even in the most challenging, difficult, and heinous of circumstances. And towards that end, if you would, join me in prayer. God of unbounded grace, whose Son reconciled us to the Father through his death and resurrection, grant us the courage to search our souls, the humility to confess our sins, and the faith to accept God's forgiveness. Open our hearts to extend loving compassion to those who seek our mercy and empower us to model forgiveness and reconciliation in a world hurt, pained, and broken. Through Jesus Christ, our only mediator and advocate. Amen. There are several objectives I hope we might accomplish in our conversation together this morning. First, to explore the theological foundations for forgiveness and reconciliation and their practice in the lives of the faithful. Not only what do we believe, but how do we actualize it? Second, to examine the social and political models of conflict resolution and the pursuit of justice which embody theological uh, perspectives of forgiveness and reconciliation. And finally, to discuss the potential application of models of forgiveness and reconciliation in the resolution of challenges confronting contemporary society. So not only to talk about the tools that we have available to us as people of faith, but how we might deploy them and use them effectively in caring for all God's children. As we have done in previous conversations, I offer you uh, several uh, passages from scripture that you might consider in uh, reflecting on the notion of forgiveness. Certainly Psalm 94, where uh, the psalmist speaks of God as a God of retribution, of vengeance. We see Isaiah, he will repay wickedness and evil. But then we turn to Romans, where in fact St. Paul tells us that overcoming evil is done by proclaiming goodness. In 1 Peter, where we live not for vengeance and retribution, but for righteousness. And toward that end, I invite you to follow along as we read that brief section from the 12th chapter of Romans, just to set the stage for our conversation today. Here's hear what St. Paul has to say. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lonely. Do not be claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will keep burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
reminded as we begin this conversation of an experience within our own St. Louis community just several months ago. You might recall that a gentleman entered Catholic supply store in Manchester, sexually assaulted two women, and murdered a third. Several days later, the former chief of police, Tim Fitch, and newly elected member of the St. Louis County Council uh, wrote an op-ed piece in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. In it, he said, God killed lots of people back then. He wiped out whole villages and towns. And I get the whole thou shalt not kill. But an individual like this, there are rare instances when someone is just pure evil and they need this penalty. This horrific sexual assault and murder begs for the ultimate penalty upon conviction. The message needs to send a convincing message in senseless deaths such as the one forced on the victim, Jamie Schmidt. What Tim Fitch is doing is summoning an all too familiar emotion that many, if not all of us, share at least some of the time. That is, there are such offenses, such crimes, that are so heinous that they demand the most forceful of retribution from all of us. The question is, is that what God calls on us to do and to be? Take you back to our very first conversation on the concept of violence in Scripture, and we concluded at that point that despite the fact that there is violence in Scripture, God is not a God of violence. God does not perpetuate violence uh, in a cynical way. It's not done to accomplish ennoble goals, but rather to restore order uh, when chaos reigns supreme. But what do we do? How do we as a society and a church grapple with this pressing need to get even, to try and restore our own sense of justice in a world gone awry? The concept of vengeance is nothing new, certainly, for any of us. The Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament are both replete with calls for divine and human retribution, several of which we just cited a moment ago. But there are limits imposed on that, what's known in Latin as lex talionis, that is proportional response, the law of equal for equal. So when we think of the phrase, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a light for a light, most of us think of that as a concept of revenge, proportional justice. But in fact, when it was proffered, its intent was to limit the excesses of human beings. No, if someone pokes out your eye, you can't kill them. If someone steals from you, you can't cut off their hand. Let's tell you this, from the earliest days of scripture, calls on people of faith, God's children, to be measured in our response. Now, the fact that we see vengeance and retribution emerging in Scripture is not its only locus. It's prevalent throughout uh, literature. Just think of uh, Hamlet, Achilles, uh, even the uh, most recent uh, uh, book and film, Carrie. Okay. What about uh, television series and other films? What about the work of Arnold Schwarzenegger? Bruce Willis, Clint Eastwood, let alone what we see in comics and video games. Images abound within our culture and within our lives that challenge us to meet out our sense of fairness and justice, to get even. I would argue that the impulse for such is really limitless. And there's not a great deal we can do to stop it. What we can do, however, is to challenge and channel it. Uh, the impulse for retribution and revenge is both individual and collective. There are times when each one of us want to get even. There are also times when, as a nation or a society, we want to execute revenge. We want to get even. Think about our response in the wake of 9-11 getting even with the people who did this. President Bush on top of the pile of ground zero. Today, they will, soon they will all hear from us. A call for justice and revenge. The nature is also imagined and real. Some of the things that upset us and anger us, 
The injustices in this world are quite real. Others are fantasized. Others are slights that we perceive but were never intended and in fact aren't real. We respond both with caustic invective, angry words, manipulative language, but we also exercise retribution with lethal force as we do in capital punishment and wars of response. Yet truth be known, revenge solves nothing. You know that in your own life. No matter how hard you try to get even, and even when you execute that plan, I suspect most of us feel worse after we've done it than we did before. As a nation, as a world, we found that war solves nothing. Economic retaliation solves nothing. Building walls solves nothing. There has to be a better way. And how then might we deal with what that better way could be? The need for justice, the need to respond to violations of human or social sanctity, occur collectively and individually, as I mentioned a moment ago. Collective offenses are often offenses against the state or perpetuated by or perpetrated by the state. So for example, think about the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, or the recent slaughters in sub-Saharan Africa. There are excesses of the state, the state gone too far, and groups of individuals, whether sanctioned or not, respond violently to try and set things right. Okay? A sense of retribution. So for example, in the French Revolution, Marie Antoinette says, let the meat take. And the people respond in violent revolt. But that revolt eventually spins out of hands in the work, by the work of Robespierre and uh, his confederates. And the revolution is every bit as painful, every bit as hateful uh, as the crimes committed by the monarchy before it. Likewise, the Bolshevik revolution in Russia. We note also that there are not only collective offenses, either against the state or perpetrated by the state, there are also individual criminal offenses against specific targets, personal crimes, personal offenses. And for those, we've developed retributive criminal codes. For the next few minutes, what I'd like to do is to talk about the ways we've responded as a world to those collective offenses that involve the state and the state's people, and then a few minutes talking about the same kind of approach that we've taken to crimes and uh, sins against individual human beings. Perhaps the uh, most well-recognized paradigm for dealing with crimes against social order is the creation of the International Military Tribunal, otherwise known as the Nuremberg Trials, at the end of World War II. Developed in 1945 uh, by the victorious allies, and the intent was to punish specific conduct in four specific areas. People who were responsible for initiating a war of aggression, conspiring in a crime against peace, committing war crimes, and committing crimes against humanity. Among those who were initially indicted, several committed suicide or were killed at the end of the war. Twelve were eventually hanged in Spandau prison. Seven were sentenced to prison and three were acquitted. And subsequently, we had trials for physicians, lawyers, and business leaders, and similar trials in Japan as well for those who had committed crimes against humanity. So, the there is a model coming out of the late 1940s where the world responds to such egregious behavior, to crimes against humanity, by holding a quasi-judicial hearing and holding individuals and the organizations they are members of accountable for their behavior. However, the tribunal's role in history is rather mixed. Uh, to be sure, it advanced the development of international criminal law 
human rights and the conventions for the conduct of war. But a significant amount of criticism was offered against it, even in the United States. Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court, Harlan Fisk Stone, noted, this is a little too sanctimonious a fraud to meet my old-fashioned ideas. His point was, I don't care what you do with the Nazis. Just don't call it jurisprudence. Just don't make a mockery out of Western judicial norms when, in fact, what you are doing is creating an extrajudicial process to prosecute the perpetrators of war. The Allies certainly gained their retribution, but they failed to focus collective complicity, accountability, and guilt. To what extent did the Nuremberg trials remind all of us as Americans that it was our own government who ignored years of pleas coming from Jews in Europe? The notion that we and our government did not know what was happening at Birkenau Auschwitz at Dachau is ludicrous and historically not true. That we turned away refugee Jews fleeing to us on vessels from England and shunned them at our ports is also true. Fact of the matter is, many have argued, and I think quite correctly, that the military tribunal, while it took out vengeance on the perpetrators of these heinous crimes, it didn't resolve the underlying social issues which gave rise to the crimes in the first place. It didn't come to grips with racism and anti-Semitism, with homophobia uh, that pervaded uh, the Nazi regime. And the failure to effectively indict the German public as they stood by and watched what was happening, many have argued, has given rise to the ultra-nationalist movements in Europe and the United States we continue today. <coughs> Need to only take a quick perusal of the internet to realize how many people uh, on the militant right are so-called Holocaust deniers. They believe it didn't happen. Fact of the matter is, we got our pound of flesh, but we didn't resolve the problem. So this model of resolving international collective conflict, especially when it involves a state actor, uh, carries with it, at best, mixed outcomes. So what happens when, more recently, we have another heinous regime, apartheid, in South Africa, with tens of thousands of people killed in slaughters at the hands of a racist, uh, right-wing, uh, all-white nationalist government? That government eventually is toppled. The African National Congress seizes appropriate control through free and fair elections. And the nation has to confront what to do about its, if you will, war criminals. What it decided was to create the Truth and Reconciliation Commission to explore what model would be appropriate for South Africa to deal with its own history. In doing so, they considered a number of options. One was a tribunal similar to Nuremberg. The other was to grant universal amnesty without disclosure or accountability. Both were rejected. The military tribunal, similar to the Nuremberg trials, was rejected because it was thought to be ineffective. 30 years, 40 years after World War II, they had seen the rise of ultra-right nationalism and realized that, well, you got even with those individuals who were perpetrators. You didn't resolve the underlying conflict within society. So that was set aside. By the same token, the people and leaders of South Africa also realized that the nation itself had to be held with them. And hence, they explored another possibility. Public accountability for atrocities and the opportunity to move forward with a common vision, a third way. Under the uh, National Unity and Reconciliation Act of 1995, crimes that were eligible for adjudication included the following. 
if they occurred between 1960 and 1994, if they were politically motivated, and if they were fully disclosed by the perpetrator in public testimony. So rather than holding a trial, if you were one of these offending parties who met those criteria, you were expected to come forward in public setting and tell all, and confess all. Central to that process uh, was the guiding principle of African jurisprudence called Ubuntu, a central concern of which is the healing of breaches, the redressing of imbalances, the restoration of broken relationships, a seeking to rehabilitate both the victim and the perpetrator, who should be given the opportunity to be reintegrated into the community he is injured by his offense. It's a summary of Ubuntu. Uh, by retired Archbishop Desmond Tutu. The point of this process of truth and reconciliation was not just to hold people accountable, but to provide a mechanism that reintegrated them into productive society, that didn't put them in prison, that didn't leave them marginalized, but in fact welcomed them back into the family. But that could only be done if they made full and public confession. As part of that process, uh, the victims of the crimes under apartheid were invited to all the proceedings. They were allowed to oppose amnesty, but they could not unilaterally veto it. So the victims were allowed to provide their testimony. They were allowed to say, your crimes have been so heinous, you should not proceed. Uh, the largesse of the state, but they could not unilaterally be told. That was the decision of the commission and the commission alone. The commission, therefore, is acting, if you will, as the states and the people's better angels of their nature, taking it out, taking crimes out of the realm of the personal and elevating them to the realm of the social and the communal focused on pursuing long-term interests of the state by exposing both victim and perpetrator vulnerabilities and inviting both to shape and share in the national future. What the people of South Africa believed was that South Africa could only rejoin uh, <coughs> the world of free people by reintegrating all of its people, black and white, uh, racist, non-racist, those who supported apartheid, and those who opposed it. So what we see in uh, comparing the International Military Tribunal of Nuremberg and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are two very distinct theories of meeting out justice. Uh, societal responses to collective criminal offenses uh, committed by state actors. Uh, in the case of the International Military Tribunal, it's a retributive model seeking proportional punishment without the expectation of rehabilitation. Nobody expected those who were sent to prison in the wake of the Nuremberg trial to be any less Nazified when they came out. They were sent to prison to punish them. Okay? They were hanged to be punished that sense of vengeful justice. Now, a similar level of heinous behavior on the part of the state is responded to in a quite different manner by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Rather than retributive, we're looking at a restorative model focused on healing broken relationships and reintegrating perpetrators into society. So two dramatically different approaches to the criminal behavior of the state. And one might argue, and certainly I would, that truth and reconciliation offers far more promise uh, for the life of uh, the state of South Africa and for the life of the world uh, than the military tribunal did. Proportional retribution, that sense of lex talionis, that we talked about a moment ago, uh, tends to be focused not on uh, 
the crimes of state actors or large groups, but focused on distinctive acts of violence against individuals or small groups. This is what Tim Fitch was talking about in his op-ed piece. You know, some crimes are so heinous that they deserve the death penalty. The foundation for proportional uh, retribution uh, begins with the Babylonian Code of Hammurabi, uh, almost 1,500 years before the birth of Christ. It certainly permeates the Jewish Torah, reflected in English common law, and a foundation of Western jurisprudence. It's how we go about doing our business. Okay. The purpose of it is to provide the plaintiff or the state with an equitable settlement. No more, no less. So you put out someone's eye, that doesn't deserve the death penalty, uh, as I said before. It's to impose penalties consistent with offenses, and therefore a proportional range, including fines, incarceration, and in American society, sometimes even death. But neither deterrence nor rehabilitation are fundamental to this theory of justice. Those who have argued that our prison system is intended to rehabilitate prisoners are simply wrong. It could be, but it is not designed for that purpose. It is designed to execute a sentence on behalf of the state for a crime committed. And if rehabilitation occurs, it is incidental to the process. Now, perpetrators, therefore, may gain insight and reorient their lives, but that's not the purpose. So the question then is, if it's not the purpose, why do we do it? So let's look at one model of responding to individual crime against a small group of people. And I call this the Mother Emanuel model. You might remember the murder of nine members of historic uh, Emanuel A.M.E. Church in Charleston, South Carolina in 2005 by a 21-year-old man named Dylan Ruth. Uh, at his arraignment, several family members of the survivors expressed their forgiveness. Uh, and as local uh, reporters noted at that moment, there is virtually no precedent in America for what transpired at that hearing that night. I think many of you remember actually witnessing it on television. Several family members appearing on a video camera in front of Dylan Ruth and saying, no strings attached. In fact, so powerful was its story, it, it, it circulated widely uh, a narrative of turning the other cheek in the face of uh, profound loss, quickly adopted by the public as a model for reconciliation amid tragedy and trauma. I think any number of us uh, recall, perhaps even sermons extolling the virtue of, even in the face of our great pain, extending forgiveness. Sad to say, that narrative was simply not true. What we now know is that among those nine families, members of only three of the families exercised their forgiveness. Most were still waiting it out, and several other families were, in fact, deeply offended by the coverage that had been given and cited uh, perhaps best by this uh, quote from one of the survivor families. The misconstrued public portrayal took away our narrative to be rightfully hurt. And there's a question I know coming in just a moment, but the point that I'm trying to make is that if we're looking to Mother Emanuel's experience as a model for responding to affront and pain. It is not the singular narrative that we as the public were led to believe. Right? If I may, I understand the scales of justice, both civil and religious. On one hand, on one scale, there's that willingness to forgive. And it's offset or balanced by contrition, penitence, penance, then reconciliation and remission. That there's an act on the part of the offender that, that starts with contrition. You're absolutely correct, and in fact, uh, that will be the segue to the next part of, of this conversation.
let's put uh, Mother Emanuel in its context. Uh, and I was drawn to the writings of the Reverend Dr. James Cone, perhaps the best known uh, black liberation theologians, made the observation that one forgives the oppressor in order to transform anger into something that nourishes the soul. In the history of black liberation theology, granting forgiveness is not about making the uh, sinner feel better. It's about making yourself better. It's about bringing yourself closer to God. It's about getting the hate out of your own heart and out of your own soul. The Mother Emmanuel model of unrequited forgiveness is a reflection of that dimension of lived black experience in the history of the church in this country. But again, we need to be very cautious as a society in trying to appropriate that when most of us, especially those who are white, one, don't share that experience, and two, when the narrative was greatly exaggerated. So what about, I'm sorry, please. Expectations of the tax collector, the prostitute, the sinner. 
to give up their evil ways and return to the grace and glory of God. And so should we. Such a confession uh, was, <coughs> was actually adopted by the early church as an extension of baptism. Remember uh, when Mike introduced the first Sunday of Lent, or excuse me, Ash Wednesday, and he called on us uh, to join in the pursuit of Holy Lent? It reminded us that the period of Lent was a time when even the most notorious of sinners who had been cast out of the Christian community were welcomed back into a dialogue to do just what Randall had said, to contemplate their own sins, to take responsibility for them, to amend their lives, and ultimately to be welcomed back at the Easter Vigil into the life of the whole community. So not only is confession and our confession and reconciliation rights of the church in dealing with those things that we think are personal and ephemeral, our own early church made them actually work as a measure of jurisprudence. That's how they dealt with one another. The early church practice formalized its uh, right of uh, confession. Uh, the penitent's general declaration of sinfulness, the priest's invitation to repent, then a detailed confession of specific sins, both those that are known and unknown. In the process of that kind of confession, the priest provides counsel, direction, and comfort, and then offers an absolution. What's most powerful about the right of confession and reconciliation in the context of writing social and individual wrongs is that, the, if you will, the judge, the priest, closes that right by asking the person who came to him or her seeking forgiveness for their forgiveness of him. Joan? Um, I asked a priest one time about that, that if uh, someone confesses to him some crime, and the priest forgives them. I don't know. They do that. Would you do that? No. And then, um, I, I can't remember what he said, but then I asked him, well, do you report that to the authorities then? No. He said no. No. You, you wouldn't do that? Even if it was a terrible crime? No. Confession for a priest. Yes. Sacrosanct. Okay. It is inviolable. So the question then becomes, and this is a departure, probably a topic for our discussion of it next year, but let me give you a heads up about how that functions in the real life of a priest. So if you have someone coming and they're about to bear their soul, you, uh, you listen very carefully. And most often you can tell the path that someone's going down. So for example, a person comes to Mike or me and says, you know, Father Mark, I need to talk to you. Uh, I was alone with my nephew a couple of weeks ago, and all of a sudden, my antenna go up. I think I know where he might be going with this, and I cut him off. I say, I think I know what you're going to share with me. You need to know I'm a mandated reporter, and I will report that, and I will not hear it as part of confession. Okay? So that's the way I avoid being caught in a line where I can't break the seal of the confession or fulfill responsibilities to was that just something you decide, or is that no, the way you're trained? Or? It's the way we're trained, and it's, it's what courts recognize. Uh, that is a privilege that is uh, sacrosanct. Now, what happens uh, if you find yourself uh, caught in a bind and it comes up, and all of a sudden you hear something that's really damaging and it really needs to be heard, and you heard me say, No, I would not forgive you. When I do, it's taken by the shoulder and say, You want to forgive you want to be relieved of this. Oh, yes, please, I'm suffering. But isn't God What you say to them at that point is, I'll do that. But we'll do it after you are able to drive down to the police department and check it. You confess to them, then I will bring you back solution. But God does forgive everybody their sins. He doesn't have, or does God say, now go confess to the authorities? Yeah. I think. You're raising a great question, and I think today is probably not, not when we can deal with all the breadth of that, but it does
should give votes in it? Yes. But is there a responsibility on the part of the sinner to seek God's forgiveness? And that like, absolutely yes. That's not. God's amnesty, I don't believe it's blanket. I don't believe God issues blanket amnesty. Remember Jesus' words. It's not just you are forgiven. It is you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Yeah. Right? And if you just say, yeah, I don't But we do. And the good news is God's forgiveness is boundless. So, but being, you know, uh, in the interest of, of time, uh, the exhortation coming out of this model, using the church's right of sacramental forgiveness, is an opportunity to engage each other. Think about what would happen if we had a restorative model like this in dealing with juvenile justice offenders. Helping them be accountable for their behavior. Helping them, providing them with tools that are realistic, that strengthen them, that build them up, that give them education, provide them with meaningful work. Instead of just saying to them, go and sin no more, let us help you go. Mark, you may not be aware of this, but in fact, we're um, hosting, we're not doing it ourselves, but um, our partners with the Episcopal City Mission, that um, a number of you have helped with birthday parties with the Episcopal City Mission. So Episcopal City Mission is a long-time ministry of the Episcopal Diocese and the juvenile um, system, the juvenile detention and they have just started a new pilot project that they're doing here at Holy Communion. We're offering free space for them to do it, where children who have had encounters with the juvenile court but do not yet have sentences are doing now court mandated, but um, uh, reflection groups with chaplains uh, as part of a restorative justice model. And so there are ways in which these kind of questions are being asked by the system and by partners in ministry with us. Um, and it's neat, you know, one of those roles we play as a community center uh, to offer space to those folks. Good. And hence, it's a mechanism that allows something that is as well-constructed and as ancient as the life of the church to find its way into the secular life of our own society. Uh, providing, as Mike just suggested, created mechanisms which ground individual reconciliation a perpetrator's full public disclosure of the offense and voluntary and unconstrained commitment to a redirected life. Demands a personal level of personal accountability. And I think as we've just mentioned, it avoids this concept. I think it's misconstrued a blanket amnesty. And perhaps most important, it allows for the person to be reintegrated into society to be productive, to be the person that God created and the person that God hoped would be. Mark, you got a question? I'm sorry? Well, I was just thinking that in my head, it's like, what if we have someone that says, you know, uh, I killed the SOB and he had it coming to him and, you know, uh, he had it coming to him so I'm not sorry. You know, that's what I say. would like to, to make a confession and receive absolution. Okay. Uh, yeah. What about war? <coughs> what about war? I think, uh, interestingly enough, we'll have an entire discussion next year about the concept of just war. Uh, that is far too complicated, I think, to this model and has more factors you know, involved with it. But uh, the question then for you,
balance between retribution and reintegration and restoration, which is the challenge of Lex Talionis and Ubuntu, that we call upon the better angels of our nature, that we understand and practice the unbounded mercy of Jesus to forgive but also to call upon the world to go and sin no more, and that we encourage a way of hope and grace for each among us. Since this is the last of uh, this year's conversations on the nature of violence, I want to thank uh, all of you for your patience, for your wonderful feedback. Uh, we've made a number of changes in the curriculum because of the comments you provided for us. Uh, and hopefully that will be a, a more than a little benefit uh, as we promulgate this curriculum to the larger church. Last, thanks to Mike for letting us host this. Mike, we'll talk about a couple of things. 